Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Comics for the week of January 4th, 2022. So the first DC spotlight uh, of the new year. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Hope you're all enjoying the Spawn Daily that Rocky and I are doing because we're insane. Uh, but man, I got to say, some of those Spawn issues are pretty darn good. They, they've they been holding up over time. Yeah, they do. Uh, they hold their own. They hold their own. Yeah, yeah, especially I love the Morrison ones. For so anyway, ho hope you guys are all enjoying that. But we're we're here to talk about new comics today, not thirty year old comics. So just a reminder, full spoilers when we do uh, DC on Tuesday. So these are the books that are are dropping this week from DC. And I gotta say, overall, so first of all, a little bit of a smaller week, which that's kind of strange. Usually, you know, first of the year rolls around and everybody starts dropping everything, but DC didn't slow down in December. So that might have something to do with it, but overall <laughs> some pretty solid books, probably only one that I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but yeah, overall felt it was a pretty good week. What about you, Rocky? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good week too. I mean, most of them I, I enjoyed, I, you know, there's, I, I think you and I probably agree on the ones that we, the one that we enjoyed the least, but no, I was, I was pretty, we're starting the year off, I think, relatively good here. I, I, I gave I gave my year end review of my top my top twenty DC comics that people can check out on the channel. And uh, I, it's it's funny with DC. I would describe DC in twenty twenty one as if I look at the forest. Sometimes I feel like the forest is on fire, but when I look at the individual titles, they're they're actually pretty good. So it's the yeah. oddest thing. Collectively. I feel a little uncomfortable with DC, and yet when I look individually at the respective titles, I feel much better about it. So, and I think that's in keeping with the DC Omniverse, the idea that a less of a focus on strict continuity. And I found in this past year with DC that when I just let go and I don't, I don't let myself be too beholden to continuity, I do find that I enjoy the stories a little bit more. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, what DC is going to be doing moving forward because we, of course, we're leading into a summer event, uh, which is going to be another crisis with Joshua Williamson. And we got Trial of the Amazons. We got War on Earth 3 coming up. So we got some continuity-laden events coming up. So it's going to be interesting to see what 2022 brings us. Yeah, I mean, will they use that? I mean, let, let, let's face it. At, at this point, you know, with what they did with Rebirth, which was a little bit of a soft reboot and it, it messed up some things, especially the Superman titles, right? Like it merged at some point stuff with the, the new 52 Superman and the pre-crisis Superman. And it, you, you had to not think about it too much. And now we see that future state in a way has done a lot of the same things, right? Like uh, especially with uh, the Jace Fox version of, of Batman, like just don't think about it too much because if you do, yeah. <laughs> you'll see that it makes no sense whatsoever in terms yeah. of timing. So exactly. Right. Will this, will this new crisis that Joshua Williamson is, is leading us toward with uh, justice league incarnate, will it fix some of those things? Will it bring back some beloved characters who've been gone for a while? And I say characters, I, the only one I can really think of is Alfred. Um, who's gone and, and what else it, it might do. Will it fix the green lantern core? You know, questions like that. Um, and I agree with you. Like it, I, I nitpick all, all the time about the, the Jace Fox Batman thing, not making any sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, if I look at just the story, it's unfortunately it's the continuity is so bad there. It pulls me out of the story. But if I just look at the story, the story's not bad. Uh, and we know John Ridley is capable of writing some very good comics as uh, other world of DC history shows us but uh anyway speaking of batman that's where we're going to start we're going to dive in uh detective comics 
is going weekly right now for an event called Shadows of the Bat. We have part one in DC Comics number 1047. And there's a backup story as well. Uh, but the main story called The Tower is written by Mariko Tamaki. We get Ivan Arais on pencils, which I did not know he was going to be jumping over. Uh, last time we saw his work was on uh, the Batman Superman, which we loved from um, Gene Luen Yang. Uh, but anyway, he's doing the pencils. Danny Mickey is on the inks. Brand Anderson does the colors. Ariana Marr on letters. Um, there's a couple of cool variants, including one by Lieber Mejo, one by Jorge Fornes. And this has everything to do when it says the tower, what they're referring to is, is Arkham Tower, right? Like we, we have talked about it at length in the lead up to this about why in God's name would they rebuild Arkham Asylum as Arkham Tower, still call it Arkham Tower and have it right in the center of Gotham uh, as opposed to on the outskirts of town. So now when somebody breaks out, they're right there in the city where there's all <laughs> sorts of uh, potential victims hanging around. So kind of interesting. Uh, and as far as this story goes, we, we sort of start in the middle and then jump forward even more, which I think is an, an interesting narrative. Um, you know, last we saw Arkham Tower was still being built uh, in the pages of uh, Detective Comics, but now we're already on day seven. We meet the new doctor, Dr. Ware, who's in charge of everything. There are some concerns i'll say that are, that are raised by specifically they're given voice through deb donovan the reporter for the gotham gazette and she's speaking with uh cat kane batwoman and saying uh i don't believe in medical miracles this dr ware is is you know talking about how he, these people have been cured and you know he, he's talking about rainbows and sunshine and unicorns uh but in my opinion or in my experience mental hospitals don't put on a dog and pony show and we haven't seen any transparency in terms of this research that, uh, for this me these medical breakthroughs that he's touting and I can't even find a medical license for Dr. Ware <laughs> you know, so he comes across as maybe somewhat of a con man um, and we hear from uh, from Batwoman that there are some pharmaceutical drugs uh, on the streets of Gotham that uh, some gang called the party crashers are dealing with. So that raises questions. Could they be connected to Arkham in some way? And so we're shown all of this stuff and, and some questions are raised. And then from one page to the next, we jump from seven days after Arkham tower has been opened to 24 days. It's now Arkham tower day 24. And we get this incredible scene from Yvonne Reese, this, uh, this full page spread with a, a really interesting angle. Uh, if you're joining us on YouTube, you can see the art there. We're kind of looking up at the tower from below. There's flames, th there's smoke, there's a SWAT team. There's all kinds of police action uh, around the building. Helicopters are circling. A little bit of diehard here, right? Like under siege. Um, and sure enough, we get some scenes inside, including Batwoman trying to, to break in. We know that Robin and Stephanie Brown are inside as well. Uh, and somehow the, uh, the inmates have taken over the asylum, like literally, right? Like that's a, that's a, a saying, right? When things go sideways, <laughs> you talk about the inmates taking over the asylum. Well, here's where that phrase comes from, right? The inmates have literally taken over the asylum and we get a quick interlude of, uh, of Mayor Nagano saying, I want a plan of action. I want names. Where the hell's Dr. Weir? Um, where's Nightwing? And we know that uh, Oracle is involved as well. Uh, she's trying to raise Nightwing. She's trying to raise Stephanie Brown, who are inside. 
And we get a look at, and I can't remember her name. Anna um, Volshin. Anna Volshin, that's right. Uh, so we saw her for the first time last issue in Detective Comics, and she was looked to be somewhat of an assassin, but then it seemed that she was just attacking people at random in this office building. Stephanie Brown was able to apprehend her. They put her in uh, Arkham Tower, and this is exactly what Rock and I were talking about with why would you put this place in the middle of the city? Um, <laughs> clearly, whatever experimental treatment or miracle cure that Dr. Ware was touting didn't work on her or never worked in the first place. Yeah. She seems to be the one running the show. She throws a hostage out a, a window at some point because her demands aren't being met. So, again, we're very much thrown into the deep end of the pool here with without any uh without any explanation and uh, we find out after the body hits the ground that uh, apparently it was dr weir itself that they, they they threw out the window but for some reason she cut off one of his fingers and it's quite nasty in the picture there um so what's going to happen how did they get to this state well we, we do get a little uh a little blurb right at the end that says next what the hell happened so I guess we're going to go back. It's it's not the most original storytelling device, you know, uh, in media res, it's called starting in the middle of the story. Um, so we got just, you know, just a hint of this Dr. Ware character. And like I said, Deb Donovan voicing the concerns about him and, and the way he's running the asylum. And then all of a sudden, you know, the crap has hit the fan. And I suppose next issue will be dialing it back to see just how this went wrong. Um, not the biggest fan of telling a story this way. Only because, as we saw with Future State, it can ruin the surprise, right? Like, we already know that this thing goes sideways and it's hell in a handbasket. Um, but we didn't get too many details about exactly what uh, Anna Volshin is asking for or what the hell's going on. Um, but what we do know and what we knew ahead of time was that, you know, Batman, he's, he's off the table. This is Detective Comics, but Batman doesn't show up in this, in this book at all. Uh, not in the main story anyway. So, uh, but I did enjoy it. And I mean, the Yvonne Reese art, spectacular. I mean, that guy is just a superstar as as everybody knows. So what do you think of the, uh, the main story, Rock? Uh, you know what? This worked for me. This worked for me. Uh, look, it, there's there are probably the majority of Batman fans out there uh, are feel a little bit critical of this of this of the subject matter of this storyline because oh my god another Arkham Asylum story only now it's Arkham Tower and like do we really need a story is it really that surprising that something goes wrong at Arkham Tower I mean everybody saw this coming and yet strangely enough and maybe I'm an outlier on this I really like the way this was structured now granted Marika Tamaki started off her future state uh, storyline the same way as as a lot of DC titles did last year where you started off we, we knew we kind of knew how the future state was was going to be ending for for batman and then the story was told up to it but i like this we know what day seven was after arkham tower opened and day 20 day 24 is an absolute disaster and uh, you know all of a sudden we know that on on that on day 24 nightwing hunter stephanie brown they're they're in the tower their status is somewhat unknown something happened to these inmates in that fort in this two-week period in that two-week period something happened to the inmates they had a cure Dr. Weir at the beginning of this of this comic bragged about actually curing Nero. Nero was one of the ones that actually took uh, Mary Nagano, uh, Nagano hostage during uh, F Fear State. And he's supposedly c c cured. Anna Volshin was supposedly cured. 
what happened? And how is this new drug that supposedly cured them? Uh, how is this related to the party crashers, this new this new gang on the streets that's trading illegally in pharmaceutical drugs? I like, you know, this is this is we, we got to remember, this is just really just the first opening issue here. And a lot has been established already by Marika Tamaki. This was a very, very well put together opening issue. Very well done. Two particular pages. I want to give a, a shout out to Ivan Reese. The art is fantastic. I love the page where it shows Anna Volshin slowly walking down the hallway, colored in in red with the colors. And oh my God, it looks creepier than hell. It looks terrifying. And and then that a beautiful full page spread where you know the Doctor Weir is thrown crashing out of the tower as he's falling down. I mean, this really. This actually has some feelings to it and, and, and gravitas. I actually, I thought this was, look, considering that this subject matter might be a little bit cliche and tropey to a lot of us uh, longtime Batman fans, I, I got to give Marika Tamaki credit. I'm really curious to know where this is going. And I thought, I laughed when I saw that final caption on that final page where it says, next, what the hell happened? I'm actually curious too, because it started off, they're curing patients, everyone's happy. I mean, everyone, Dr. Meridian was hired by Mernagano to, to talk to Dr. Weir, to, to monitor things. How did things go wrong? You know, this because this is a spectacular failure. I mean, one could argue that even the normal Arkham Asylum lasted longer than two weeks. <laughs> so in any event, I, I actually enjoyed this and uh, kudos to Marika Tamaki for uh, keeping me intrigued and uh, shout out to Brad Anderson on the colors. He did a good job there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The colors are spectacular. Yeah. The art overall is, is fantastic. Um, yeah. I, I should say, I, I enjoyed this as well. You know, as much as I, I had a little bit of critique about the, the story structure, I wouldn't have gone that way, but you know, she's the writer. I'm not. And, and I did enjoy it. And, and you're right, Rocky. It's, it's, it's an interesting hook, right? Because we do see sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. And then, 17 days later, it's not that things have gone wrong. It's that things have gone so wrong. Right? Like it doesn't really look like they could have gone much worse. So uh, there is a backup story from writer Matthew Rosenberg, who seems to be doing more and more work in the, not only for DC, but specifically in the Batman corner of the DC universe. The art is by Fernando Blanco. Jordi Belair does the colors. Uh, it's called House of Gotham. And it's, I'm not sure what the purpose of the story is, uh, but it's, it's an interesting uh, start, right? Be because it does seem so sort of vague and in a way generic in terms of the experience that these Gothamites uh, endure. It's a, a mother, a father, and a son. They live in an apartment in Gotham City years ago. Uh, the father comes home. He's scared to death. He's telling his wife, grab the suitcases, grab everything you can. We need to leave right away because uh, somebody's after him. And it turns out the person after him is the Joker. So they hide their young son in a closet. The Joker shows up, murders the family, or the mother and father, I should say. And um, the he, the little boy who's hiding, who has his father's gun, is uh, is able to survive the encounter because uh, the Joker realizes that Batman's going to be there. So when Batman comes crashing in, the Joker has already left the scene. The little boy then pops out of the closet, points the gun at Batman, and and um, says, "You know, don't touch my mother." because Batman's kneeling down to see if she's still alive. Uh, and this little boy blames Batman along with the Joker. And when the police show up, he says, you know, it was a, a guy with, uh, with wings and a clown that did this. And so the, the rest of the story basically is about different people, 
um, Crispus Allen being one of them. And then uh, Commissioner Gordon all trying to find a place for this kid to go. And nobody, apparently child services in Gotham doesn't work 24 hours, which I don't think that would be a thing. But anyway, what ends up happening is these two patrolmen are taking the kid to Arkham Asylum, like of all places, really. That seems like taking the cat in, uh, into the hen house in a lot of ways. But uh, that's where they're headed. Uh, they're going to drop this poor kid off at Ar- Arkham Asylum. So I don't know who this kid turns out to be. It very well could be that he's Nero because uh, he does have red hair, just like Nero does. Uh, but we'll see how it, it plays out. Uh, I think story that Matthew Rosenberg is telling, again, it's not you know the most original. It seems a little bit generic in terms of this experience the family goes through. But the art here by Fernando Blanco is, is fantastic, and it really sells the story. So uh, I'm curious. It's been one of the better backups we've had in a while because the most recent one, the Harley Quinn one that we had by Stephanie Phillips, just felt very paint by the numbers. This feels a, a little more interesting to me. Uh, any thoughts on it, Rocky? Yeah. Well, I'm curious as to who this kid is, too. I, I initially thought that it would be Nero, but I thought maybe it's like that would be Nero. I, I thought Nero was in his 20s. I, this would have to go back at least more than 10 years, certainly to the early days of Batman. I guess that's possible. I know continuity is a little wonky in the DC Omniverse. So, um, But again, let it, leaving the continuity issues aside, I like it. it it's it's there's an insanity again to the whole as if you're going to take a kid you know social services is not open 24 hours come on and then you're going to take him to arkham asylum i mean i mean that just sounds that truly sounds ridiculous but i mean yeah that's it, that's criminal in and of itself exactly now matthew rosenberg probably is using that as sort of like i mean the idea that of arkham asylum being used almost to raise children. Uh, I mean, the Arkham Knight, the character of the Arkham Knight, uh, which was written, I think Tomasi wrote that, that character, created that character. Uh, yep. She was essentially the, I think the great granddaughter of Arkham, of Amadeus Arkham. And she was actually, you know, the, 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 the inmates of Arkham Asylum essentially raised the Arkham Knight. And so the idea that, you know, how would a child be if they were actually raised and their foster home was essentially Arkham Asylum. That's kind of been done before, but it's only been done, to my knowledge, once before. So Matthew Rosenberg maybe has his own take on that. So might, maybe that's where he's going with that. How, how would a kid raised in Arkham, you know, how would they end up? We already know how the Arkham Knight ended up. And she's currently in the task. She's currently dead in Task Force, eh, task force Z. But in any event, I didn't mind this. Uh, I'm really curious to see where Matthew Rosenberg is going to take this. And if, if there is any linkage to Marika, Marika Tamaki's uh, main storyline. Yeah, and that that panel that you have, that full page spread that it ends in, very ominous and great great work by Fernando Blanco, who does the line work and the colors, because that's just great color work as well. Uh, as the if you're, if you're listening to us, basically it's uh, Arkham Asylum in the background, and this police car is pulling through the gates as the snow falls uh, and snow covers the ground. Uh, it's got its lights flashing and whatnot, so very ominous. Uh, all right, up next, interest of full disclosure. This is my least favorite title, and it's not close. Uh, and I didn't particularly care for the first issue. It's One Star Squadron, number two. This is from writer Mark Russell. Steve Lieber handles the art. Dave Stewart on colors. Uh, Dave Sharp on letters. I don't really have a lot to say. Um, I This is not for me. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of Mark Russell's work that I enjoy. Uh, he's a very satirical writer. This is him sort of commenting on in a way, the futility of superheroes, 
uh, and how ridiculous the, the idea of these fantastical people with powers is. Um, but it, it ends up feeling a little bit mean spirited to me. Um, again, I know he, that he's, he's trying to make social commentary on this, but, um, I don't just don't agree with his point of view. Um, I think that superheroes have, have more worth than, than how he's portraying them here. Although I get what he's trying to do. Uh, and I think there are people that will find this uh, amusing or interesting or thought provoking. I'm just not one of them. Um, it just, as I said, it, to me, it comes across as mean spirited and sad, but not in like a poignant make you think kind of way, just in, in like, Hey, I'm going to make these, these people look pathetic. And I, I just, again, not for me. The art by Steve Lieber is fantastic. I think the color work by Dave Stewart's done, done very well also. Um, but I don't have anything else to say beyond that. It's, this is just not for me. I don't like it. Um, but I, I have a feeling that the, many people will. It's just, I don't know, maybe I take my superheroes a little too seriously. Uh, comics have been such a big part of my life. And I think, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of positives with the stories <laughs> and the lessons, uh, the morality tales, as, as it were. Um, yeah. And this kind of is, I don't want to say insults that, but it's a different, it's a different perspective on that. And it's not a perspective I share. So just not for me. Yeah, no, I, and I, I, I hear what you're saying because in a way it, it makes such a mockery out of the superheroes and, and that's clearly its intention, I think. And, but, and it wants to take a serious look at the heroes yet at the same time, it, it clearly pokes fun at them and makes a mockery out of them. And it, and it, I, I went back and forth this issue. Uh, I'm I'm much I was very harsh on the first issue. I'm less harsh on this one. And there was a couple of laugh out loud moments for me that I admit, but it's this oddest thing. I went from really resenting aspects of this issue to laughing at other moments. So I uh, I was sort of like all over the place in terms of my reaction to it because it I'm not sure it's like I, I guess writer Mark uh Mark Russell has the excuse that well, you know, this is parody. This is parody. It's it's my commentary on superheroes, et cetera, et cetera. And I get that, and it is. But in a, to a certain, there's a certain conceit that writers might embrace when they're doing parody, and that is they can shield themselves from constructive criticism by saying, "Well, you know, I was just meant to be parody. I'm sorry if my jokes are lost on you, you know." And you know, I, I'm, there I speak on behalf of Mark Russell. I I don't mean that. I just that I don't. I'm not fully. I can't get fully into this world and I can't fully divorce myself from it. And, and that's, that's what makes it uncomfortable for me. I don't find this to be, I, I find this to be more insulting than, than anything else yet at the same time, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, is that Minuteman isn't a superhero. He's not. Minuteman is a guy that takes Miraclo pills that apparently you can buy on the street. The lead character, it starts off with him approaching a drug pusher to buy Miraclo pills so he can get superpowers for an hour. Well, if you're doing that, anybody can do that. Don't, don't tell me Minuteman is a superhero. So what is he doing working for the One Star Squadron? It doesn't even make any sense. Anymore. The entire premise of the story, this lead star, is com it defeats the entire purpose. It's completely forced. It's ridiculous. And we're supposed to feel sorry for Minuteman because he's a loser? I'm sorry, but there's lots of losers in society. And, and frankly, you're not a loser just because you're unemployed. There's lots of people that are unemployed or by, by. So, I mean, the whole thing just seems a little bit dated, outdated. And you're, and you're, you're taking this character who was never a superhero as far as I'm concerned. And when he was, he took Miraclo pills. And then, and now he, it's later on in his life and he's kind of pathetic. And, but at the same time, as harsh as I sound, 
I gotta admit, I laughed out loud when he 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 Miracle Man or part Miracle Man. <laughs> oh my God! A Minute Man goes to the birthday party and he's trying to entertain the kids and. All, all the guy who hired him wants is just show the kids some superpower. That's what I'm paying for. And of course, the, the miracle pill is only supposed to last. The miracle pill is supposed to last for, for one minute. He's supposed to have one minute of superpowers because he's a minute, man, a minute man. But unfortunately, they only last for 45 seconds. <laughs> and, and, he loses the, and he loses superpowers just when the kids are getting a kick out of hitting him with hammers. And so he gets injured by the children because he, he's... And they end up breaking his arm and then he complains to Red Tornado and then he goes to a Comic-Con and uh, he's so ha- he actually meets the guy who played him, who played Minuteman in the movies and the guy ignores him and he ends up in <laughs> Red Tornado unintentionally joked that he ends up, that he ended up in Comic-Con jail, <laughs> which, oh, by the way, I was going to say, the reason why I laughed is that I spent an hour in, I, I can actually brag, I spent an hour in Comic-Con jail myself one year. Because I I brought a I brought a weapon to a comic con and I didn't I didn't <laughs> I didn't register it and it was I didn't have a green I didn't have an orange tip on the end of my my Jonah Hex gun and so I ended up arguing with some guy for an hour in like a room and I thought I was in jail. <laughs> Anyways, so I can relate to that scene here where you know he's down and out and even at a comic con he's treated with disrespect and they you know they put him in comic con jail and then they then he's got to leave and he's all depressed. Anyways. So there you go. I'm all over the place reading this. So I got something out of it. On the other hand, I don't like Power Girl's portrayal of Karen Starr. She continues to, uh, she orchestrates things to overthrow Red Tornado to take over the company because they don't like how Red Tornado is handling it. And all the all the bigger heroes get all the big gigs. And uh, in any, you know, um, like I say, this, this isn't for me, but yet at the same time, I'd be lying if I said it didn't have its moments that where I got a smile on my face. <laughs> yeah but. yeah uh, maybe it'll get better i don't know i'm gonna i'm gonna keep reading it you know which is totally on me that i get these stories <laughs> that i don't like but they send us preview copies and i feel obligated to, to read them <laughs> and talk about them so that's right but anyway yeah we'll see how that all plays out uh anyway let's move on we have the end of crush and lobo it's issue number eight the series has been a little up and down it's from writer mariko tamaki the art is by amin k nahalapin Colors by Tamara Bonvillain, letters by Ariana Mare. We saw last issue, or we learned last issue, that this the whole idea of of Crush going after Lobo was all planned by the, the warden. She never was going to be freed. Uh, and in this one, we find out that Lobo himself was, was in on it, which isn't 100% surprising. Uh, Crush is like, let me get this straight. You, you did a study, and you wanted to know what the last two aliens of the, the known universe if one would be able to catch the other. And so this was sort of a, uh, a prison release program. And the warden's like, yeah, basically, um, it, it was all because I wanted to write this book called uh, Terrible Two, which is <laughs> a pun. It's not, you know, the number two, but to, two as in also, so terrible, T-O-O, as in crush is terrible also. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Lobo, you know, he's just looking out for himself as always. So once Crush realizes this, the gloves are off. She, she realizes she's, she's not going to be killed. The, uh, the bracelet or the wristband or whatever you want to call it that she had could never have killed her. It wasn't a bomb. It was just a, a recording and a tracking device. And so there's a, a little bit of a, a fight between Crush and Lobo and the, uh, the guards at the prison. We don't really get to see much of it. It's all censored. 
in sort of an amusing way by uh, by the creators here. Uh, and at the end of the day, Crush and Lobo kind of go their own separate ways after uh, at first talking about maybe uh, maybe teaming up. They say, well, should we go or do we agree to mutual destruction or go our, our separate ways? Uh, because they're talking about maybe trying to turn each other in for the various bounties that are on their heads, but ultimately decide to go their separate ways, which for, uh, for crush means going back to, to earth possibly to, to see her, uh, girlfriend who that was sort of the whole reason she fled earth in the first place to go talk to her father. She had a falling out with her, uh, her girlfriend. Um, but whether that will happen is to be determined. It is all finished off with a, the end question mark, uh, and it's new adventures. So I'm sure we haven't seen the last of crush, nor have we seen the last of Lobo, but in the end, nothing got resolved in terms of their relationship. I don't feel like their relationship evolved at all through the course of this story. Uh, I mean, ultimately I, I'm not the biggest crush on Lobo guy, as I've said throughout while we've been reviewing this, but I was interested enough to see if, if, you know, to learn more about crush who I hadn't had any experience with at all, but the promise of, of some sort of maturation of their relationship was, was an interesting one to me. Um, but we didn't get any of that. So at the end I end up thinking, okay, why did I read this then? It, it all sort of doesn't seem to matter or count for anything. Um, and I say that as somebody again, who's not a big fan of these characters. So if you are a fan of these characters, you probably did get something out of it. You got to see Crush and Lobo fighting and there's funny humor. There's uh, there's plenty of action and, and um, some great art and some great color work and everything. So in terms of, of that, I guess if you are along for the journey, it's more about the journey than the destination. For me, because I'm not invested in these characters, I, I was more about, okay, where do they end up? And is that an interesting place to me? Well, they don't really end up any where different than where they started. So, you know, for me, it, it was kind of, I don't want to say useless or, or, um, a waste of time, but it just, it didn't go anywhere that I found interesting personally. So, um, I mean, you're, you're a little more invested in, in this, uh, in these characters than I am Rocky. Did you feel differently? Well, I wasn't expecting that. I was hoping that there would be no development in their relationship because I didn't expect there to be, uh, this is Lobo and Crush. Okay, this isn't, you know, this isn't like an episode of uh, like, you know, this is us or Brady Bunch or I mean, this is there's no moral lesson at the end of a Crush and Lobo story in my in my own head canon. People might disagree with me on that, but I, I didn't want any. And I I had, this is my favorite issue of, of them all because it was just Crush being Crush and Lobo being Lobo. They ended up basically. You know, they, they're basically, they were both pawns in, in many ways of the warden who just wanted to use them to write a book. I mean, it was actually kind of comical. Um, the warden says that Crush and Lobo can't be rehabilitated. So if you're trying to get some moral lesson out of this is that the, the warden always assumed, never assumed for a second that Lobo or Crush had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. And of which uh, perhaps some readers like myself could possibly agree with that. But but Crush is actually hurt by that, and that actually, Crush is actually pissed off by that. Right? And and the irony is that Crush probably did have some sort of impact, and Crush and Lobo did have some moments together. And of course, those moments that they shared together involved a, a 
gratuitous violence. And there was even a scene where they even referenced the scene where Lobo was, was nude. In fact, the warden even joked they, they had bets on whether or not Crush would be able to re- retrieve her father when she went to look for him. And the warden even joked that she her that when she made her bet, she made even more money because she bet at one point in time Lobo would in fact be nude and he was so i actually chuckled at that marika tamaki had a lot of i think i get the sense marika tamaki had the most fun doing this issue uh this ends with crush accepting the bounty to go and retrieve all of the prisoners that ended up escaping because her and her father lobo destroyed the prison so all the prisoners escaped because they destroyed it and yet crush gets hired back to retrieve all these prisoners so you can expect perhaps at some future story with a future plot line it pretty much writes itself that Crush and Lobo might be competing to retrieve the very same inmates that both of them had a hand in releasing when they when they intentionally destroyed the prison. So, you know, and there was a reference to, you know, Crush, you know, texting her girlfriend Katie and what have you. So if people really want her to get and get together with her girlfriend Katie, that's that hap- that might happen at some point. But I like the fact that Marika Tamaki never concentrated on that. That was sort of the thing that may or may not, ha- may not happen at some point in the future. I like the fact that that relationship is on the sidelines and may or may not be explored because I just like the craziness of the two main characters. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, well, let's move on. We have uh, the second part of Joshua Williamson's first arc on Batman, The Abyss. Uh, this is issue number 119, written by Joshua Williamson, Jorge Molina, and Adriano D. Benedetto with Mikel Yanin as artist. Tameya Mori does colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, this was an interesting one, Rocky. What'd you think? I liked it. This uh, this was a... Uh, Joshua Williamson impressed me. I, I actually... This is a nice, friendly reminder that... that uh, Batman has something to worry about in Lex Luthor. Uh, one of the points made in this issue is that that bat that batman's always faced villains that like to re- relish in the darkness of gotham city but lex luthor is an enemy that uh is always in f- in broad daylight lex luthor is the enemy that you often can see coming cuz lex luthor he operates in daylight he he's he's a lex luthor likes putting on a show lex luthor likes to know when you're coming he there's there's an arrogance to luthor he likes you know he he's got the ego that uh that the type of ego that that really Batman is not accustomed to necessarily having in, in an enemy, uh, quite to that extent. I like I like the fact that you know Lex Luthor here has essentially bought Batman Incorporated. Remember, following the storyline which which played out at the end of Joker War, going into Fear State, Bruce Wayne is is not is not broke, but he's not a billionaire anymore. We know that Lex Luthor is now a billionaire again because he blackmailed other. He just recently, in the pages of Superman, Son of Kal-El annual that we reviewed, he blackmailed a number of other supervillains to give them $1.7 billion each. So Luther's now a, a multi-billionaire again, and he <laughs> and he utilized some of those that money to buy Batman Incorporated. And he clearly, he's there's something going on here. Uh, I, I love the way that uh, the, the artists on this issue, uh, Jorge Molina and... Uh, and then Adriano de Benedito and Mikel Janin, the way they divvied up the art. Mikel Janin's art was is my favorite of the issue, especially when uh, Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne, they have a conversation in, a, of course, uh, Luthor's high rise, where, where Luthor 
very clearly, I mean, and arrogantly talks to Bruce Wayne and, and actually has a, has the, literally pours himself a glass of wine from a $20 million bottle of wine, the last, the last vintage bottle that exists, a $20 million bottle, pours himself a glass of wine, doesn't pour one for Bruce Wayne and pours the rest of it on the, on the ground. I just love it. Is this the, leave it to Luther to do something like that. Uh, and just making a point that, you know, like, uh, uh, rubbing it in. I mean, uh, you know, he knows that Bruce Wayne is, is Batman and, uh, he says, all that money of your family worked so hard for, gone in the blink of a clown's eye. I saw your former ward Nightwing gave your butler's money away to charity like some fool. That boy was always a bit soft, wasn't he? I mean, Luther is, is clearly taking pot shots at Batman, at Bruce Wayne, at the Batman family, at the legacy. And um, it's, it's funny. Uh, Bruce Wayne even loses his temper a little bit, but he pulls himself back. And... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what Luther's game is here, uh, but it's it's clear that at the end of this, Abyss apparently is still alive. We were led to believe that Superman, or Superman, sorry, <laughs> Batman was investigating uh, the death of this character, Abyss, who in Europe was apparently murdered by other members of Batman Incorporated. But it appears as if Abyss is still alive. Batman utilizes his contacts through this uh, detective, uh, Kea, Kea to examine the body. And he wants to examine the body before Luther does. Luther wanted to work with Batman and say, look, let's work together to solve this mystery. I own Batman Incorporated now. Uh, you know, my, my, the members of Batman Incorporated that I own have gone rogue. Uh, help me, help me solve this. Let's do this together. And while, well, of course, Batman will never trust Lex Luthor. And of course, he tries to do it on his own, only to discover that, that, uh, Abyss essentially comes back to life. Uh, Batman also discovers that the manner in which the uh, Abyss was killed with a nine millimeter that no one in Batman Incorporated uses that caliber, which is interesting. I didn't think anyone in Batman Incorporated used a gun, but uh, I guess I'll stand to be corrected on that. But in any event, uh, the body was also months old and not a few weeks old. So there's a number of reasons to believe that something is amiss. This Abyss character comes back to life and uh, in, in a beautiful sequence, I'm not sure which artist it was, but it shows Batman utilizing different visions from night vision to infrared uh, through his eyes and, and the way they glow on the page. It's just a beautifully illustrated page. And it's and then there's a sort of a he uses a flash grenade only to discover that he he he's gone blind. And so the issue ends with Batman actually being blind, but he's got to escape the pre precinct because the. Uh, Please know that he's there. Uh, I I thought this was a a beautifully structured comic. I thought this was paced well. I liked the 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 art. The different styles of art uh, worked well together, uh, particularly the the, the the scene transitions. I, I really felt that. I really I felt Lex Luthor's arrogance. I felt his uh, his character really shone through. I love this Lex Luthor. I love the business Lex Luthor. I love this so much better than the Apex Lex we got. Couple of years ago, with the with the justice with with Perpetua and all that year of the villain nonsense, Lex Luthor's back, people, and I love this Lex Luthor. I, I love the way he was portrayed in Superman: Son of Kal-El number five, and I like the way that he's confronting Bruce Wayne and, and being a thorn in Batman's side here. So, um, what do you think of it? 
Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, maybe more than I've enjoyed a Batman book in a long time. Um, I went looking for the next part, right? Like, uh, you know, we, we get these press previews and sometimes we get them you know, multiple weeks in advance. And so sometimes it's possible to, that we already have, you know, sit, not that we always have time to go, or at least I have time to go reading uh, ahead <laughs> to, to the next issue. But, but you know, if we have three weeks worth of, of uh of issues sometimes and something's coming out twice a month, you'll have the next issue. I enjoyed this so much. I was like, Oh, do I have, is 120 available? Can I, can I see the press preview of 120 already? So that's how much I enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wasn't real clear on uh, was the fact that, that Luther does know who Batman is. I didn't know. Does that go back to when Luther was a member of the justice league? Does it go back to when he was apex Lex? I wasn't clear on that, but in my mind, I don't know. It, it doesn't sit right with me. Luther knowing that, knowing that secret is not good for Batman, obviously. So um, there's one other thing that could be fixed in Joshua Williamson's crisis if uh, if the powers at DC so choose. <laughs> That's right. But that minor little nitpick. I enjoyed the story very much. Um, yeah, this Abyss character seems interesting to me. Uh, the idea of Batman sort of being blind. <laughs> I mean. Uh, at various times, Batman's been compared to Daredevil and vice versa. You know, Daredevil's the the, the Batman of the, the Marvel Universe and whatnot. Joshua Williamson's taken that one step further here uh, with Bruce Wayne being blind. So we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, pretty interesting. Um, the character, uh, the the police detective that seems to be on Batman's side in, uh, in the story is an interesting character as well. I expect her to continue to be uh, an ally. So we'll see how she, she's probably the one that helps get him out of the building now that he's he's gone blind. But uh, yeah, very, very intriguing. Great cliffhanger ending. Um, the backup story, which uh, very much in the tone of uh, of Gotham Academy with uh, the, with the kids and the main character here, uh, if I pronounce it right, Maps Mizoguchi. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not really familiar. I never read Gotham Academy, but. I know Carl Kershaw was uh, a big part of the creative force behind it. He's the one that writes draws and letters. This story with colors by John Rauch. So I know maps is uh, a favorite for people uh, of Gotham Academy. So I'm sure they'll enjoy seeing her uh, in teaming up with Batman, maybe, you know, kind of further along than she ever has before. She actually puts on a Robin costume and starts an investigation on her own. And then who shows up, but, you know, Batman. And uh, he tells her to get in the Batmobile, probably in in uh, thinking that he's going to take her home, make sure she's safe. When all of a sudden, um, some other things happen that that call his attention. And yeah, she's she's fully fully teamed up with him as a as a Robin. So again, um, I think a lot of people who are fans of Gotham Academy and and fans of Maps um, in particular are probably going to enjoy this. For me, it was just okay. I, I like I said, I never read that series and uh, not not really invested in the character, so I thought it was fine. Um, any I, thoughts on it, Rocky? I, yes, uh, certainly. I I got both series. I read both series. I got them all. I, I love Gotham Academy. I even have the variant covers uh, for some of the issues. I I, I love it. This Mia Mezaguchi Maps for short is. Uh, obviously one of my favorite characters of Gotham Academy. This actually is, in fact, one of my, one of my criticisms of Teen Titans Academy is that I wish it had more of a feel of Gotham Academy. Although I know that 
uh, writer Tim Sheridan with Teen Titans Academy is tr was clearly trying to do something different, and I I I think to to less of an effect. But I like Gotham Academy and I like Maps and this and Maps is likable here in this in this short story. Mia uh, comes across if you if you know nothing about Maps, you know everything you know about her in this issue. She's likable. She's energetic. She's a bundle of energy. She's passionate about wanting to. Um, basically, she's she's smart. She's intelligent, <laughs> and she's she wants to investigate the all, some some missing kids down by the river. And one of her neighborhood friends that uh, wasn't a very good friend of hers, but went missing. And and at one of the one of the parties, like her her parents are rich. One of her at the one of the parties, Bruce Wayne shows up, and Bruce Wayne hears her complaining about her friend gone missing. And then that's why Batman ends up showing up and investigating it. It's all because of Mia. And then he sees Mia dressed up as Robin. And I just, that's just, uh, you know, what I like about Mia dressing up like Robin, and it's so in keeping with the character, is that Maps dressing up like Robin, she's she's not doing it because she one day wants to be Robin. She's doing it because she's just a kid. And she's having fun. And she's, but yet she's she's engaging in clearly dangerous activity, investigating obviously homicides or, or missing kids. But I, it comes from, it comes from the right place, Right. Uh, there's I don't I don't see I mean although there has been talk I should say there has been talk about at some point making maps the next Robin blah 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 we we need another Robin like we need a hole in the head but uh, in any event I like this and Carl Keschel man he can continue to write these types of stories I love them if we can't get Gotham Academy I'll happily take them in these backup features this is a backup feature that uh, I think even though it's not really related to the main storyline. Uh, there's nothing better when I love a backup and the main feature, and I don't always get that with DC. This I really like. This is a, I think this for me it puts a smile on my face. I love seeing uh, maps again, and so this is yeah. This is this was a, a great issue between the main storyline, which I'm really enjoying the Abyss Part Two of Abyss, and backup. I'm quite happy. Fantastic. Uh, okay, let's move on. We have Justice League Incarnate Number Three which we've sort of referenced a, a couple times already. Joshua Williamson is the writer. Dennis Culver joins him on writing duties. A uh, couple of different artists here. We have Ariel Olivetti does pages one through three and 20 through 27. And then Nick Varelli does pages eight through 11. Todd Nock does pages four through 15, 14 through 15. Mikhail Yanin, uh, pages 12 to 13, 16 through 19. And then Andre Brezin, pages four through seven, 28 through 30. Uh, so obviously one of those situations, all hands on deck. Uh, I'm not sure why they can't uh, just get one artist, but at least they're telling a bunch of different stories in different multiverses, right? Like, you know, the, 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 the omniverse of DC multiverse. So in that way, it sort of works because you don't have one artist doing, you know, separate, uh, multiverses. Everybody kind of stays in their own lane. So it does work. Maybe they planned on it and they wanted each of them to have a different look and that's why they did it that way. Um, so it doesn't really, you know, different art styles because some of them are, are really different looking, but I think they lay it out in such a way that it, it keeps them from pulling you out of the story. And it, it does make sense from, uh, from that aspect. Uh, also, there's a consistency of colors because Hi-Fi does the colors throughout. Tom Napolitano does the letters. So uh, we saw last time that the the headquarters of uh, Justice League Incarnate that was in the bleed exploded and kind of scattered them through different uh, different places in the multiverse. So they, they're each, as they discover where they are in the multiverse, they they're each sort of have their own separate missions uh, of what they need to do with 
Dr. Multiverse and uh, President Superman maybe having the most important one because they're on Earth Zero, which technically is supposed to be our Earth, which obviously doesn't have superpowers and whatnot. So they don't have access to their superpowers. And it ends up getting pretty meta um, when they figure out that they have to start writing comics um, in order to <laughs> influence or send messages, like a message in a bottle, because uh, in a way they're controlling what else happens um, because they're writing these comics. So it gets a little meta. And ultimately, uh, we find out that their editor is Darkseid himself, which they don't realize. Uh, and why would they? Um, but there is one particular panel where he calls them into the, the DC offices after they've been there three months because time goes by much faster in their world, Earth Zero, as opposed to uh, the timeline in a comic because comics come out once a month, right? So they're, they play into that, the difference in timeline. But uh, I thought it was fantastic. I think this is one of the Michaela Yanin pages. And there's this one particular uh, scene where uh, he's the, the editor is sitting at the end of the table and he's got like kind of his, his hands like this uh, with his, his fingers steepled under his chin. And he actually looks, he actually looks like dark side in that. Uh, yeah. There it is. If you're watching <laughs> this on YouTube, that bottom middle panel there, he, he kind of looks like dark side, you know, a human, a, you know, human form dark side in that, in that panel. So um, kudos to the, the creative team, kudos to Joshua Williamson for coming up with this idea uh, it, it does get super meta and whether or not it works, you know, can be argued, um, in that scene, the, the editor is telling him, you guys, in order for this to, to work, you got to let dark side win. And Dr. Multiverse is like, I, we're never going to let dark side win. That that's just not a thing. And he's like, yeah, we, you know, we got to worry about sales and this and that and the other. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's, a. I'm sure it's a conversation Joshua Wimson has had with his editors at various times. I don't want the story to go that direction. Well, for sales purposes and whatnot, that's the, the you know, the direction it needs to go. So I, I, I appreciated that as well. And then of course, once they realize that it's dark side and there's a bit of a reunion between all the members of the justice league incarnate. Um, and I'm not sure, does it say where, which earth I may have missed it, which earth they're all pulled into, but they do have this fight where the where the crack in the multiverse currently is, and when Doctor yeah. Multiverse grabs it, uh, she's unable to close it, uh, even though that was her plan, even though that would trap Barry Allen on the other side. Uh, but it it plays just into to Darkseid's plan all along. We find out he's been one step ahead of them uh, because what happens as Doctor Multiverse absorbs the crack within her, she makes a realization, and Darkseid's just kind of standing there uh, and. Thomas Wayne, Dr. Batman, uh, although he doesn't like to be referred to, to as that, says, why are you so smug? The crack is closed and your your bid for power is over. And she said, no, she she doesn't have close to enough power to close the rupture. It's just now contained inside her so nobody can ex exploit it. And so then Avery, the, the the Flash that's a member of the team, says, okay, so you lose then. Either way, get you know get out of here. And Darkseid looks down at Dr. Uh, Multiverse and says, go ahead, tell him. And she says, it's not over. We have to let Darkseid win. And as she says that, there's tears coming out of her eyes. You know, she was there arguing with Darkseid when he was the under the guise of the DC editor, saying we'd never let that happen. So for whatever reason, she's absorbed this crack in the multiverse and, and now realizes that Darkseid was right all along. They've got to let him win 
Um, and why that is, we don't know yet. Maybe it's to, to prevent the entire Omniverse from exploding. Uh, I'm just not sure. But what's interesting is we were told by the, the editor, we were told by President Superman, he was saying, hey, the editor says we have to let Darkseid win in the short run so we can win in the long term. Um, so, and it was Darkseid himself, one of the guys of the editor that was saying that as well. So obviously Darkseid is going for the short-term win, but knowing Darkseid's also thinking he's going to be in for the long win as well. Um, so is this Dr. Multiverse then saying, hey, we, we need to let Darkseid win? She doesn't say we need to let him win in the short term. She says we need to let him win. Um, so what's interesting is there's enough, uh, there's enough issues left in the series that we could see Darkseid win in the short term. There's five issues left. So if we see Darkseid win, whatever that means uh, in issue four, could could it then get turned around in issue five? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Or maybe uh, it's Darkseid wins over the next two issues here, but then in that event that we were talking about coming later this summer um, from DC Comics and Joshua Williamson, if that's where everything gets, gets turned around as well. Um, but one thing's for sure, the great darkness is coming. Next issue, Worlds Collide, as we see um, on Earth-7, the, entire, the, the entirety of Earth-7, uh, where a lot of the uh, other members of the Justice League Incarnate who, were not, who didn't show up for this battle against Darkseid are still trapped. Uh, the entire world has been turned into an Oblivion machine, and it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the members of Justice League Incarnate who were there, uh, like Aquaman, Dino Cop, um, Orion is there, uh, Mary Marvel. So we'll have to see how that all plays out as well. That, that storyline is still going, but uh, Joshua Wimson's moving some big pieces around in, uh, in DC continuity. It kind of goes back to what Rocky was saying earlier about, you know, when you look at the individual issues, things are, are going well. When you look at the overall, that's where you kind of wonder. And I do as well, because typically with in the past with these big type stories like this, not, not with, um, Heroes in Crisis, because that was a smaller, more intimate story. And it was supposed to be, but when you look back on the crises before that, um, to a lesser extent with Identity Crisis, because again, that was specifically supposed to be a small story, just about the mistrust of the Justice League within itself. But I'm talking about the original Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, I'm talking about Infinite Crisis, and I'm talking about Final Crisis. Those were big events. Those were big. Well, don't forget Multiversity. Don't forget multiversity. There's a lot of multiversity here. Yeah, there's a yes. Well, you know, Grant Morrison putting his stamp on it, and I, to me, multiversity was a natural extension of, of Final Crisis and and restoring, you know, the, the multiverse. Yeah. Um, but regardless, those three that I mentioned: Crisis on Infinite Earths, Infinite Crisis, and Final Crisis. They were such big events that they crossed over and affected all the other books in the DC line. Um, and, and the one thing that doesn't really make sense to me is is that they're sort of trying to have their cake and eat it too, I think, with a story that's this big and it, it is talking about the multiverse and it is talking about, you know, affecting all these different aspects of the DC Omniverse, but you don't see it even referenced or you don't see any consequences in any of the other books. And I get it, right? It's sort of like uh, when Rebirth happened and they tried to make it affect everything and it was a soft relaunch. A lot of books got new number ones. But, you know, the, the sequel to that Doomsday Clock and how long it took to come out sort of precluded that event from being able to cross over in a timely fashion in, you know, sort of real time with the events of, of DC. And I feel like ever since then, 
they just haven't been able to get all their ducks in a row and have things line up, you know, in real time, like it should. Um, and it's not, I'm not pointing a finger at, at anybody, Jeff Johns or Gary Frank or anybody. I'm just, that's just the realities of, of comic books these days. It's, it seems a lot tougher to, to kind of wrangle. Um, and I, I think that hurts DC. DC is a different publisher in terms of tone and style than Marvel is. Um, and, and I think DC leans a little more into legacy and, and connectivity. And so when it doesn't, when it's not working, like I feel like it's not working right now, that is where you, you overall, you start, you know, seeing a little bit of a breakdown. So can they, uh, cause a solution to my mind is, can they have this event that Joshua Williamson's going to do? Can they have it tie in line wide? And I'm, I'm not saying that because I want to have to buy, you know, 500 books to get the whole story, but man, when I think back on Crisis on Infinite Earths and how you'd see that Crisis uh, on Infinite Earths trade dress on top of the issues when they came out, it just, it made it feel so big. It made it feel like it mattered so much. And and to me, this should be, this is a story that does matter and it should feel like it matters more just because it is affecting things at the very core of the DC universe but it sort of feels like an afterthought rather than being the most important story that's going on right now because of how it can affect everything. Uh, it, I don't know. I don't even hear anybody talking about it. So that that's strange to me. So what are your thoughts, Rocky? Yeah, well, you make a good point. Uh, and I think the reason why you don't hear a lot of people talking about it, I can't help but think, and I absolutely could be wrong because who knows exactly what's going on in the, in the minds of DC editorial, but very clearly there there is a, Joshua Williamson is slowly building towards something. There are clearly with Infinite Frontier and with Justice League Incarnate here, along with hints in his Deathstroke Incorporated, uh, Deathstroke Incorporated series, uh, we are leading somewhere. I mean, there are multiversal hints and multiversal characters that are being introduced clearly. And that is absolutely the case here. He is very much embracing his inner Grant Morrison. He's got references to all the crises here. And he's really, I mean, Joshua Williamson, uh, this is definitely moving toward a crisis. At the same time, you don't need to, if you're reading any other DC title from Wonder Woman to Wonder Girl to, to Suicide Squad to whatever, you don't, there's really no connection to this. There's no, there's no, there's no red skies uh, to, to use the term as it, as it was back in the original crisis that there's no obvious linkages to all the DC titles. And I almost think that maybe is by design. Because, because you know, it's kind of funny just holding you accountable to what you're saying, uh, and I'm kind of the same way. Is a lot of times we bitch about these big events because we don't want them to swallow up the entire line, publishing line, and yet when they don't, we kind of bitch about it. It's like, well, aren't we supposed to? We we have shouldn't this be a bigger deal? Shouldn't this be advertised more? And and yet, well, <laughs> in a way, part of me kind of likes this because it's in its own. It's taken place outside the the mainstream. Earth Zero Earth. It's with Justice League Incarnate, and yet it still feels kind of epic and a story in and of itself. And I, I don't find it complicated, uh, at least not yet. Although at the same time, it's getting there. But in any event, let me talk about what I love about this issue. We got Earth 41, and Earth 41 throughout this issue is where the crack in the universe is, appears, to answer your earlier question, uh, uh, Jace. And it's where the, the Nimrod squad is and where Captain Carrot ends up. Joshua Williamson, he entered, he, he re reminds us, for those of us who may have forgotten Multiversity, which came out years ago, 
Earth 41 with a Nimrod squad. We got Earth 7 where the the entire planet is an oblivion machine. Uh, and the oblivion machine was finally created by the gentry. The gentry is the is that multiversal power that dis, that that destroyed that destroyed the multiverse, the first multiverse and the, the second one. And I guess we're on our third multiverse if you believe Grant Morrison's multiversity. Uh, we got Thunderer, Dino Cop, Mary Marvel, Aquaman, and Orion. Even Sturmer the dog. We, we then jump to uh, Earth Thirty One, which is a pirate world which we've never seen before. It was only hinted at in Multiversity. This is a drowned world post with a, a post-apocalyptic a, a world that suffered climate change. It's a drowned world where we have uh, Captain Wonder, uh, uh, Donna of Troy, Wally Waterwalk, Cap- and they're fighting Captain Blackbeard, who's got a treasure chest of comic books. And and it, that's a reminder of like in Multiversity, it was a comic book that, that, that was utilized by the various people uh, by the various characters to weave the way through the multiversal crisis of multiversity and the reference to earth 33 it's earth 33 that is essentially our earth earth 33 on our earth only ideas can penetrate our earth the heroes can't if the heroes end up on our earth they lose their superpowers and uh it's um uh, there's a fictive membrane that covers Earth 33. I love that phrase. Where we have a fictive, a fictive membrane around us that any any hero that, that visits our planet uh, from another world, they lose their powers. And Calvin Ellis and Doctor Multiverse and ultimately Darkseid end up on our Earth. And I, I got I love the fact that and you alluded to it is the idea that Darkseid is an editor at DC Comics. I mean, how often do we? I mean, come on, how often do all of us bug and make jokes at, at the expense of DC Comics and editorial? We vent our frustrations about uh, back in the day. We vented about Didio. We vented about editorial this, editorial that. What are they doing? They don't know what they're doing. Well, of course it's anti-life. It must be Darkseid who's running DC Comics. That's why it's so screwed up. He's playing with us. He's playing with our emotions. It's all anti-life. <laughs> so I kind of like how you kind of think about breaking the fourth wall there. A lot of fun. Um, and we got Earth-26 uh, with the amazing Zoo Crew. Uh, so much happens here. There are so many things to pick up that we could get into the weeds on. But I just want people to enjoy this. The great darkness is coming. Empty is thy hand. And we got Gentry. We got Darkseid. And I'm... I gotta admit, I was—I didn't like seeing the Batwoman who laughs last issue, because I thought, "Oh my God, is this going to become a Gong show?" But yet, this issue, even though we got so many crazy characters, I actually feel it's headed in a, in a direction. I, I I really love this issue. I loved how it, Joshua Williamson seems to be masterfully moving all these parts. I hope I'm I'm hope I'm right on that. I'm hope I'm not putting too much faith in Williamson because I've been hard on him in the past, but man, I'm really enjoying this as a longtime DC reader, someone who's not afraid to get into the uh, history of DC. I really like this. Uh this is uh this was my uh my my comic of of the week as a matter of fact. I, I enjoyed it that much, but I can see I can see it frustrating a lot of people, but I loved it. Yeah, and the, the editor's name being Ulrich Saxman. Uh, I like I, I who's that a reference he, to? Well, when he popped up on the on the page, I yeah, I was trying to figure out who. Okay, what DC editor are they making fun of? Or you know, he sort of looks like Didio in a way, a little bit. Uh, maybe just because he's bald, but you know, much more like Darkseid now that you, mm-hmm. you know you look at us, especially if you're if you're watching us on YouTube. I mean, just look at what Darkseid looks like there, and you know, back behind yeah. us in the background, and then look at what. 
uh, Saxman looks like, but um, Darkseid's real name is is Uxus, right? U X A S. Yeah. So in a way, Ulrich Saxman. I mean, it's got a lot of the same same letters, so I'm sure that's what it's in reference to. So. Uh, anyway, from one uh, multiverse to another, I guess you'll say. Uh, up next is Dark Knights of Steel, number three. This from writer Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri. Colors by Arif Prianto. Letters by Wes Abbott. And this is sort of um, Elseworlds tale by uh, Joshua Williamson, even though no, at no word does it say black label or anything like that. But, you know, clearly it's uh, it's a, a fantasy tale with, with the DC heroes. So uh, issue three of 12. What do you think, Rob? Uh, this this continues to uh, I continue to be entertained by this. I, uh, Tom Taylor is just doing a great job building the still building the mythology of this sort of game of his his take of Game of Thrones meets DC Comics, and uh, wow, I just I, I like how he's he's there's really machinations going on here. I mean, we have the we have the the House of Cal, or I guess the House of L is uh of course were attacked. Jorel was killed by Black Lightning's character. The I I this is the one thing I didn't even take notes on, but uh it's the uh Black Lightning what's his house called? Uh, uh I think it's the House of Pierce, right? I mean the House of Pierce, yeah. yeah. But I mean uh, they're, they believe in a in a prophecy. There's this prophecy that the reader that we're not privy to, and this prophecy has prophesized the end of days. And and the thing that sets off the end of days is uh, is a you know basically a a bright light falling from falling from the sky, which happens in this issue. And and they they're all heading toward this. They're all heading toward this light to see what's crashing to the earth. And meanwhile, uh, the the Kalal's I guess Prince Kalal's sister, Zara or whatever, Zala, she has apparently, we believe it's Zala, unless there's misdirection, she killed the, the daughter, she killed Jacob, the son of, of uh, King Pierce, King Jefferson or whatever. And she and in this issue, she actually kills King Pierce himself. But it's what we learned before that is King Pierce masterfully goes, he's got a, he's got a sort of a detente or a sort of a, he's got a good relationship with the Amazon. So he's got a good relationship with Hippolyta, but Diana, Princess Diana doesn't want Hippolyta to team up with King, uh, King Pierce because he, he accuses Zala of killing his son. And of course he's right. He actually was there and he saw her kill him unless, unless it's all an illusion. But I mean, again, it looks like definitely Zala has gone psycho and, or at least is very angry and killed his son. And in, uh, so by, by approaching the house of L King Pierce creates dissension. Cause he basically, you know, Diana leaves, leaves, I guess the mascara. So we got the vision there. Meanwhile, we got, we got Zala continuing on her quest. I don't, I'm not sure what her motive is. She's going on a killing spree and where this, whatever landed from the sky, whatever rocket landed from the sky or whatever it was, she goes toward it and ends up killing uh, uh, Mag the Magus men or the, I guess the, the equivalent of the metal men. And uh, she's, she's definitely brutal. I mean, she's, she's hardcore and she, it, you know, it looks like she's using heat vision and she, so it looks like she's actually, you know, it, it's funny that she's in a relationship with, with Princess Diana in this issue or in this mythology, but Diana refuses to believe that Zala could, 
could engage in this type of violence. And it seems like an extraordinary, an extraordinary thing not to, not to know that your 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 partner is is that violent. <laughs> but in any event, uh, I, all the mat. I like the political intrigue set up, the inner workings of the house, the manipulations going on back and forth. What 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 the what Queen Hippolyta is thinking, what Lois Lane is thinking, what. Uh, what Bruce Wayne is thinking, what Kalal is thinking, what Zal is doing, and what I like about it is that this isn't this isn't the modern age where you have instant communication back and forth. It, because because it's set in a medieval setting, uh, the stakes are a little bit more raised here because people can stay in the dark that much longer about what's really going on. And so I gotta wonder where's Lex Luthor? Where where's the Joker? Where are these other big name villains? You know, even Harley references. Uh, you know, there's a reference to a, a lady in the lady in the in the forest, which I'm assuming is is Poison Ivy. We haven't seen her yet. And again, I just this is something that this is a guilty pleasure to read. And uh, like I said, I I quite enjoyed this. And I, what do you think? Yeah, first of all, let's talk about the art. The art's fantastic from Yasmin Putri. It gives just the right feeling of, of fantasy and uh, epicness um, and, and the colors uh, as well. It very much almost has like a watercolor feel of colors from Arif Prianto. So so it, it's a beautiful book to look at. In terms of the story itself, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, the, the equivalent of, of Supergirl here is, has kind of lost it, right? She's, she's tired, I guess, of her family living under the threat from the, the kingdom of Jefferson Pierce and has decided to take matters into her own hands, or, or maybe it's just purely from the anger of her father being killed. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it, um, of, of that story choice by uh, Tom Taylor, only because it leans into what we've talked about before with Supergirl in terms of, you know, she's the angry one. She's the one that can't control her emotions Blah, blah, blah. And we've seen with what Tom Taylor's been doing with Kara in the pages of Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, that she's much more complex and much more empathetic than that. Um, obviously, this is a different version. And, you know, maybe he didn't have a, he had to pick somebody. Let me just pick Supergirl. So uh, it, it's a little nitpick, um, but, it, you know, we'll see how it all plays out in the end. I, I imagine with this being somewhat more of a on the nose morality tale that, you know, she may karmically suffer for the choices that she's made. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I suspect that this, this, whatever this, whatever this thing is that fell from the sky, I wonder if it's actually Kara Zorel. I, because, because I wonder if it's, because we, Zala is actually the sister of Kalal, but we, we actual, the actual Supergirl lore, she arrived on earth you know, After. 14 years later. Uh, so it, it might actually, we might end up with two, two Supergirls here in a sense in this tale. You never know. And that might, that might be the misdirection. Maybe, maybe it's not Zala doing the killing, but this other Supergirl, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm totally speculating. <laughs> yeah, it very well may be. And, you know, we're, we're told uh, that next issue, we're getting the secret history of, of Batman. Uh, Alfred's going to tell, tell tales. So we'll, we'll see how that all, that all plays out. Uh, the other aspect, this is the first issue where I sort of feel like it doesn't matter the fact that this is a medieval setting, right? Because like you're talking about this idea of these different, very powerful beings um, at odds with each other 
uh, and, and we know there's some greater threat that supposedly is coming that's been prophesied as well. Um, this is the first issue where I feel like you can you could take out all of the the trappings, all of the the setting, all of the you know the medieval tropes, knights and you know wizards and blah blah blah, and and swap it into any sort of uh, any era, right? Like maybe you're going to tell it as like a, a pulp detective story or uh, a crime family mob story or um, you know some futuristic story with uh, f- families as as corporations that that rule, kind of like um, Greg Rucka's, um Lazarus story. Um, it doesn't matter because at at the core, this is a story, like you said, about the politics and the machinations and these different factions. And it's clear that Tom Taylor just wanted a way to to have all these heroes fight against each other, right? Without maybe falling onto a, a story that's been done before. So he's chosen to set it in, in a fantasy setting. Uh, and, and, you know, at, at its core, that's what it is. These These characters that you wouldn't necessarily normally see at odds with each other fighting against each other for, for control, for power, for safety, for, you know, whatever reason, for whatever reason, Tom Taylor chooses to pit them against one another. And that's interesting, right? I mean, we've all had the conversations, well, who would win in a fight between, you know, fill in the blank. So um, ultimately there's another nine issues of this. Uh, It's selling really, really well. I'm hearing a lot of people praise it. I'm not a big, as big of a fan as some people are, uh, but there's, it's definitely a quality series. And uh, another great thing about it is, man, you don't need to know anything about DC continuity at all ever, and you can pick this up, right? You can, yeah. you, you don't even need to know who Superman or Wonder Woman are. Um, obviously, everybody does because they're known the world over, but uh, you don't need to know anything about it, current or recent DC history to to dive into this and enjoy it for what it is. So, uh, I definitely recommend it from that point of view. Yeah, oh, I agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have World of Krypton, number two of six. This is from writer Robert Venditti. The art is by Michael Avon Oming. Colors are by Nick Filardi, lettered by Hassan Atswan Elhow. A mm. uh, little bit of a jump forward in time here, and, and not only when the issue starts, but also within the issue. We saw last issue that one of the members of the L family, Cruel L, which, you know, you can't help but think of Cruel <laughs> <laughs> you know, like Cruella DeVille, cruel. Um, but anyway, he attempted to uh, murder other members of, of the L family. And so he's on trial. Meanwhile, Jorel, who is really worried about Krypton overall because of some of the discoveries that Nura Ur, uh, chair for the natural sciences on the Science Council, uh, has raised. She's been uh, warning of these mass extinc- extinctions in the biosphere of Krypton insects and frogs and whatnot uh, who are who are just dying in droves, which could create a chain effect that could um, damage the, the biosphere, the biodiversity of the planet. I think Jorel already senses it's something bigger than that. Like there's got to be a reason behind this. And so he's been searching for a way to keep the members of Krypton uh, or citizens of Krypton safe, safe. And again, this is, you know, this isn't new information. We know that Jorel was the one that discovered the, the phantom zone, but but that's in this story, the way that he discovers it, because he's looking for a way to uh, to save to, a place he can send all the Kryptonians if need be. Uh, and in that way, he discovers the Phantom Zone, where 
I think he, it says he's only there for like uh, 18 seconds, but he felt he was trapped there for months and he, he, he almost lost it. Uh, so it's, it's a reminder that the Phantom Zone is not a good place, right? You really don't want to want to be there. And so while he's discussing this with his brother, Zod comes in and they talk, you know, he talks about, I was looking for a survival zone. We came across this void. It's not something I would ever, you know, suggest or, you know, we can't use it. It's too horrific. Uh, it's, it's far worse than death. And so they continue their search. Uh, and, and meanwhile, Zod talks about this career move that he's making and come to find out what Zod is, uh, Zod's basically becoming the, the head of the police, if you will, uh, uh, appointed chief of planetary security. And as his first act, he sentences Cruel, who just was found guilty to, uh, eternity of banishment in the phantom zone even against Jorel's Jorel the guy I mean granted it's his brother maybe he doesn't want anything bad but also his brother that tried to kill him and he, even he thinks that that's going too far um, so it sets up this um, this sort of dichotomous relationship between uh, Jorel and Zod it's it's the beginning because previous to this they were friends they'd work together this is sort of the beginning of them uh, becoming enemies so uh, I think this is a, it's a great story from Robert Venditti in terms of just exploring the, the history of Krypton and the history of these families and these characters uh, for a new generation who may not be as familiar and putting it all in one place. Uh, I'm still not a huge fan of Michael Avon Oming's art. Uh, that's just a, a, an aesthetic thing. I'm just, just not a fan. Um, that being said, uh, I think the art here is fantastic, much better than um, I, I enjoy it much better than I did in his uh, Midnighter backup that we got in Future State. Uh, I think there's more emotion and more uh, fluidity to the art here. Um, we're not necessarily treading on any new ground in terms of what we're learning about the history of Krypton or the House of Zod or the House of El, but uh, I like the nuance that Robert Venditti is bringing. So I would definitely recommend this for anybody who's not really familiar with the history of Krypton and these families. Um, this is very new reader friendly and accessible. So uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And uh, we're, we're being teased next issue, issue three, with the rise of Zod. So I imagine he's going to start to resemble more the, the arch criminal that we know him to be uh, as he rises to power on Krypton. And that power sort of uh, affects him and changes him in different ways. So uh, what do you think of this one, Rocky? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, I think this would be good for people that 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 know nothing about the history of Krypton. This is good, and 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 even well, even for a longtime reader like myself, this is it's an interesting it's an interesting take. Clearly, Robert Vendetti, he knows what he's doing. He's he's familiar with the Silver Age version, and because the, there's there's multiple histories on the history of Krypton going back to the Silver Age, so he's taken all those characters and he's weaved them into a narrative all his own. And I think he does a good job here. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is I actually, uh, it's a concept that works well in theory, but it doesn't work well artistically. And that is the concept of the Phantom Zone. You'll note on the two pages where, uh, where Jarrell thinks he's gone for 18 months, but he's trapped in the zone. It's actually very boring artistically. And that's not the fault of uh, artist Van Oming. It's just, it's just one, just one giant white void. I mean, and so in a sense that the problem with it being a white void is that artistically it's hard to, it's hard to artistically render how horrifying that would be. 
Because if you think about it, if, if you're only gone for 18 seconds, but you feel like you've been gone for 18 weeks and you're actually experienced a giant white void where you're just floating and just trying to convey the horror of that. I'm not, I, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure what maybe Vendetti was trying to convey, but I, I guess I, I know. I it's just that it was kind of a curious choice to convey the Phantom Zone because, uh, for example, we've in the last five years in the DC universe, we've got multiple different variations of the, of the portrayal of the Phantom Zone in different incarnations. Uh, in the, in, recently in the pages of Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman in her journey throughout the multiverse ended up in the Phantom Zone and it looked completely different than the one Robert Venditti is doing. It wasn't some white void where you're where there was this multiple huge time displacements and what have you and then you got a we got a different we got a different version of in future state last year as well and and then in just as just in rebirth i mean every every writer seems to convey the phantom zone differently and once again we get a different incarnation here but um here's uh, here's what i always find interesting about the phantom zone is it's never made sense to me ever made sense to me why why Jor-El didn't just put all the planet into the phantom zone. There's a bunch of explanations saying he didn't have time and they couldn't create a projector big enough. To, and, but ultimately I find it to be really odd that if you, if you need to, if you need to save a planet, if, if the, if the alternative is death, I think that they can, people should endure the suffering of being even in a phantom zone where there's a huge time displacement like the one here. But in any event, I like the characterization. I like the art Van, uh, Von Oming's art here is better then certainly better than it has been when I compare this to his art when he when he did the Midnighter uh, backup in the pages of uh, Action Comics. So uh, I'm I'm in I trust Robert in in Robert Venditti I trust I like his story so far and I have a feeling we might be getting some hopefully something new he'll add something new because so far I don't really feel this is a unique tale I'm hoping he adds some new elements here that that maybe shock me a little bit uh, but maybe but we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, what I'll say is, uh, in terms of what the zone looked like, um, maybe Robert Venditti was just making sure Michael Avon Omin was caught up. Yeah, so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. take a lot of. Uh, there's yeah. there's that story about John Byrne back in the day doing the snowblind issue of Alpha of Flight. Alpha Flight, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How he got to get paid for not drawing anything. So <laughs> yeah. kind of yeah, kind of similar to that. So. Uh, anyway, up next, we have Superman, Son of Kal-El, number six. This is also from a writer, Tom Taylor. John Timms does the art, hi-fi on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to know what your, what your thoughts are on this one, Rocky. Um, I, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't, uh, this issue was kind of meh for me. It was, uh. Uh, I will say this. I actually think that Tom Taylor, for there's a certain contingent of Tom Taylor critics in regarding his writing of Superman, Son of Kal-El, thinking that he's going to go all political. <laughs> and I think it's clear in this issue that I don't think he's going to go go political at all. I mean, it looks like Henry Bendix, the the president of the island nation of Gomorrah, is really his agenda is that he's creating a, an army of superhumans. He's creating super, he's creating superpowered beings. And so, um, whenever you want to avoid politics, all you got to do is make the plot so ridiculously fantastical that it transcends any uh, any political accusation. And that's what's going on here. It looks as if Henry Bendix 
uh, in in moving toward this this uh, this goal called the rising that Lex Luthor referenced, and Lex Luthor is going to be te- is is teaming with Henry Bendix. We know that from the Superman Son of Kal El annual. At the end of that, Lex Luthor contacted Henry Bendix and said, you know, or instructed his underling to contact Henry Bendix and tell him, you know, tell him he wants to join him in regard to the rising. What is the rising? Not sure, but it would appear to be, have something to do with giving, uh, creating a a superhuman army. How exactly that's going to play out? Is it going to be a, maybe a superhuman army uh, create, are are they going to all live in Gamora? I don't know. Uh, A couple of other things. Jay Nakamura, the boyfriend of, uh, the boyfriend here of John Kent, he, uh, his mother, Sarah Nakamura, is apparently the former president of Gamora, which is interesting. And, and of course, she was, uh, she lost in, a, in what we are told is a corrupt election in the island nation of Gamora. So uh, I'm sure there was all kinds of uh, corruption that went on and somehow Henry Bendix rigged the election to win the election. And I find it, you know, Tom Taylor is very, very light on the exp- uh, very, very light on the details. Just basically leaving it to the reader to figure out how corrupt Henry Bendix is. But he manipulated the elections and and apparently imprisoned Jay Nakamura's mother. Uh, Jay thought his mother was uh, still alive, but apparently uh, thought his mother was was dead, but apparently she's still alive. Jay Nakamura indicates that the reason why he got his phantom powers that it was because of experiments that were done on him in while he was a while he was living in Gamora and the only reason he escaped the only reason Jay Nakamura escaped was because he became immaterial his he's got phantom powers and so he sort of floated away and he he nothing could he, he you know no, they couldn't grab him because of the nature of his powers so that's how he escaped Gamora himself and ultimately meeting up of course with John Kent in the uh the first issue uh of this of this series uh, in terms of the relationship between Superboy, uh, I say Superboy. See, look, I, I don't think of him as Superman. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to call him John Kent. I can't call him Superman. Um, the, the relationship between John Kent and, and, and Jay is, I mean, they, they, they don't they don't rub, you know, I, I think people who maybe got their got their feathers in a ruffle over the whole kiss thing, it's not a big deal. These, these guys, they, they like each other and they're good friends and... And you know they have pizza together on top of the Daily Planet Globe. Uh, John clearly cares about him. Uh, I don't think it's that big a deal. They're just two guys that care for each other. Now, having said that, one thing that I do think was, in my view, I won't say ridiculous, but I thought kind of stupid, is you know, like Damien. Like Damien, the writer here portrays Damien as older than he actually is because they they they. He's only he's only supposed to be thirteen or fourteen, Damien. He's not supposed to be older. He looks like he's sixteen or seventeen. He looks the same age as John Kent here, uh, and I think that I think DC is going to age him up and not give any explanation for it. But in any event, somehow Damien can tell by I don't know. I guess I guess John Kent is walking around with a shit-eating grin on his face, and Damien concludes that oh well, you have that shit-eating grin on your face, and you're around this pink-haired fluke this pink haired guy, I guess you must be sleeping with him or you must have a crush on him. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, he just sort of inferred from looking at his friend that this is his boyfriend. That was really, 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 really dumb. I thought that was just plain dumb. Uh, Just couldn't let it go saying I'm happy for you. 
Why would you assume their boyfriend? Now, I call Jay Nakamura, John Kent's boyfriend, but they're not actually boyfriend, boyfriend. They're not. They just shared a kiss. I mean, I, if I, I could be a sarcastic attempt at comedy here, but if, if, if you had to call everyone a boyfriend, a girlfriend that you just happened to kiss in a, in, a, in a moment of spontaneity, I mean, there'd be more chaos in social settings all over the place. I mean, so the whole thing is just like off to me, but I might be a little bit over, you know, I, I just think, I think people, I think that's going to ruffle some feathers. And I guess it ruffled mine a little bit. I thought, good Lord, really? Damien, like, like 14 year old Damien can, you know, can just guess that his buddy is like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, the, the whole, I just thought it was, was, was a little bit, I thought that was just ridiculous. I, I, I don't believe that for a second, but in any event, uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, I, I like the fact that Jay, Lois Lane, Damien, Jay Nakamura and John all end up, all end up uh, pursuing the same level of investigation to try to investigate uh, the machinations of of uh, of Henry of of John Bendix, and they ultimately end up uh, rescuing a, a group of a, a group of uh, I guess immigrants on, on a on a shipping vessel, and they get they get attacked. Superboy gets attacked, and they and they the they the one of the persons they retrieve indicates to to Jay that his mother is still alive, and then it it ends with Henry Bendix talking about the rising about to begin, and I'm really curious as to, as to where this is going. I think it's clear that uh, this is not going to be this this big political uh, you know this po- political issue that, that, that people are making it out to be, but, but maybe it is, maybe it is. If Lex Luthor's involved, you got to wonder. It seems to me that John Bendix is, is using the cloak of, of sovereignty saying, I own my own nation. Now I can get away with more because I'm protected by the sovereignty that bestows upon a country in much, much, in much the same way as he's like a de facto Leviathan. John Bendix is what maybe Bendix was is what Bendis was trying to do with Leviathan. Leviathan had his own country, uh, bought his own country, Markovia, behind which he could orchestrate machi- and, and create machinations for his own agenda and get away with it because he'd have the shield of sovereignty and you can't interfere in the integ- territorial integrity. Remember, all these people are saying Superman can't interfere. John Kent, how dare he be like, I, be different than his dad and invade the territorial integrity of another country? You can't interfere. You can't do that. Well, Bendix is clearly taking advantage of that, and and he's now working with Lex Luthor. He's using that shield, I think, behind which he's he's got this he's got this agenda that it looks as if he's creating a bunch of superhuman beings that he can probably control. And if he can control all of them, and they live in a country where he's the elected leader, then Henry Bendix, John Bendix here can be a a massive threat to the. Uh, entire DCU. So this could be, things could be uh, heating up here in this, in this title. Yeah, I agree. I think Bendix, as we said from the start, uh, is a good choice for a villain for, for John Kent. And, you know, we wondered what was going to differentiate him from Lex Luthor. Still not clear on that. They still seem to be cut from the same cloth, but Henry Bendix is definitely a, a good uh, foe for, for John Kent. Uh, I did feel that this issue was 
a little more setup uh, than some of the previous issues and didn't have as many character moments, which I was actually fine with. I feel like we've gotten a lot of character and so far, which has been fine, but we haven't gotten a lot of forward momentum in the story. Uh, Tom Taylor does a good job here without getting too expositional of giving us uh, some information that's needed, like the fact that Henry Bendix was elected by the people. Uh, you know, he won people over with his smiles and his money and his promises. But then once he took power, that's the last election Gamora's ever had, right? We know Jay's mother, who was president before him, was uh, kidnapped basically or, or, you know, hidden away. And as soon as Bendix was in power, he changed all these laws. He stripped away rights. So, yes, Bendix is very much hiding behind the cloak of, uh, you know, this leader of a, of a nation and, uh, you know, the sovereign right to rule uh, elected by the, the that nation's citizens. But if what Jay is saying is to be believed, it, it's actually the opposite, right? Like if you were to go and take a straw man poll of the citizens of, uh, Gamora, it sounds like they would all, to a man, choose to have Henry Bendix removed from power. So I, I think that that is the justification that John Kent will be using to go up against uh, Henry Bendix, right, and ig ignore the sovereignty of, of his rule. Not necessarily ignoring the sovereignty of the nation of Gamora, but rather honoring it by doing what the citizens of the nation would choose to do themselves if they could, which is re remove Bendix from power, um, especially because they're all in a way being tortured and, and being turned into superhumans, right? Uh, at least that's what Jay is telling us. Again, you take everything with a grain of salt. Wouldn't it be crazy if this all got flipped on its head by Tom Taylor and we found out that Jay was the bad guy, the brain, him and his mother were the bad guys and the brains behind it all along. Uh, we only have Jay's word that his mother was was taken away and then we learn at the end um from the ambassador uh from the the ambassador to the u.s from gamora that jay's mother is is still alive sarah nakamura is still alive um maybe she's still alive because she's working with bendis uh bendix rather um so again i'm, I'm purely speculating <laughs> it would be yeah Maybe harsh to do that to John, boy, you know, boyfriend or not. It's clear that <laughs> they, they do have feelings for each other. I also agree that uh, Damien seemed a little older here. That definitely seems to be 16, not 14. So I don't know. Maybe they're just aging him up and we're not supposed to notice. As far as him kind of catching on to the fact that there's attraction or making the assumption that John and Jay are boyfriend, boyfriend. It didn't bother me that much. I mean, I've been around people who are at the very beginnings of a relationship. And even if they're not, you know, overtly smiling or saying anything, you can sort of tell that there's something between them. So maybe, maybe Damien's just picking up on that. that that's sort of the, one of the only character moments that we really get in this issue. But again, I, I was glad for that because what we got in this issue was a lot more forward momentum on a, uh, the storyline, this idea of John Kent taking on, Henry Bendix. So uh, I appreciated that. I thought the art was fantastic. Um, I think John Timms is sort of finding his footing in terms of not making things overly busy. Uh, I think the, the worst example of that being his work he did uh, in the Future State John Kent title, uh, which mm. I think both of us disliked. It was just overly busy. 
Um, so he's, he's, it's still super detailed, and I think he, it could do with a little more letting the art breathe. Um, but the, the color by Hi-Fi uh, really helps helps out with that a lot. It's very dynamic. Yeah, um, very much so. So overall, yeah, overall, this is one of my one of the issues of, of Superman Son of Kala that I've liked more than than others. But uh, yeah. I agree with you that he's still not Superman. Stop calling him <laughs> Superman. He's Superboy. So let's just get that straight. Yeah. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Suicide Squad number eleven from writer Robbie Thompson. He's joined by Dennis Hopeless uh, on this particular issue. Uh, Eduardo Panseca and Julio Ferrer handle the art for pages five and six, eight through 12, 15, 16, 18 through 22. Did you guys follow that? Uh, Dexter Soy, the other artist who, and again, they've been doing this the whole time. Um, Dexter Soy handles the art pages one through four, seven, 13, 14, and 17. Uh, and again, I wish we just had either all Dexter Soy or all Eduardo Panseca art, but it, there's two storylines, you know, there's the, the Amanda Waller storyline uh, of her squad. And then there's also the uh, Rick flag squad. So it makes sense to at least they're making the art make sense in that they're splitting it up between those two storylines. Uh, the colors are by Marcelo Maiello and the letters are by Dave Sharp. And uh, once again, ambush bug is narrating. So what do you think Rocky? Uh, uh, th this comic is just a, it's a, a guilty pleasure for me to read. I, I enjoy this. Uh, Amanda Waller is, I mean, I, her, I'm still a little bit baffled by her master plan here. I mean, ambush bug, who of course has always been breaking the fourth wall. Uh, he 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 spells it out for all of us. I mean, he says, I mean, Amanda Waller is she's been building a group of D-list villains to invade Earth three. Okay, so Amanda Waller is creating a and is sort of trying to recruit a group of D-list villains to invade Earth three. Why? Why exactly? We kind of got hints in Future State that. Apparently, she has an agenda of, of having Earth three end up with its own su Superman, which we thought was John Kent, but we know can't be that, because now it was revealed since Future State that since the Future State Suicide Squad that actually Connor Kent was in fact Match, Match is now coupled with Nocturna. So, what exactly is Amanda Amanda Waller's agenda for Earth three? I don't really know what it is, but. Meanwhile, well, Rick Ambush Flag Bug says he doesn't he doesn't know what it is either. Yeah, well, th that's just it. So <laughs> okay, there you go. But meanwhile, you got Rick Flag who Rick Flag has recruited Peacemaker to his cause, and it should be noted here that um, Peacemaker ha no longer has a bomb in his head because Swamp Thing took it out in the crossover of the Swamp Thing in previous issues. Bloodsport no longer has a bomb in his head because Ultraman burned out the, 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 the bomb in Bloodsport's head when he was trying to recruit members for the Suicide Squad in the uh, when, when they were on Earth 3 in a previous issue. So both Peacemaker and Bloodsport are without the bomb in their head. But Bloodsport's still working for Amanda Waller. So now Peacemaker now, who has now been recruited by Rick Flagg to take out Waller, because even now, even the Peacemaker thinks that Waller's gone too far. I mean, holy moly. But Bloodsport feels blackmailed by Waller because Waller has got, will kill all of his brothers and all the different Earths of the multiverse if Bloodsport doesn't continue to help Waller. And, and that's one of the things that, that Peacemaker, in this issue, Peacemaker confronts Bloodsport and says, look, come, you know, 
I'm with Rick Flag now. We got our own team of su- su- Suicide Squad members. Come, uh, you know, come join us, and we're going to take out Waller. So while Peacemaker is the, is fighting Bloodsport, they're 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 in a pissing match, and Bloodsport inevitably ends up telling Peacemaker that he he can't because his brothers will be killed by Amanda Waller all over the multiverse. But then Peacemaker, we know by the end of the issue, says something, asks asks Bloodsport a question that we don't know what the question was and we don't know the answer that, that, that came, but Bloodsport does end up on the side of Peacemaker and Rick Flagg by the end of this issue. But in the meantime, Amanda Waller, Amanda Waller has this strange habit of, she, this issue consists mostly of Amanda Waller putting her own Suicide Squad team, she sends her own squad consisting of Match, Nocturna, Ambushbug, Talon, Major Force, and Culebra, she sends them to Earth 8 to face off against the Retaliators. Now, the Retaliators are the ones that are actually on the cover of the issue. Now, why is Amanda sending her Suicide Squad to Earth 8 to fight the Retaliators? The Retaliators, by the way, being DC's version of the Avengers, consisting of Wunjin, who is the Thor, uh, Red Dragon, which is Black Widow, American Crusader, uh, Ladybug, Machine Head, Behemoth, and Purple Rain. <laughs> She sends them to Earth 8 to test them. She, she, Amanda Waller has this twisted th- way of thinking, saying, I'm going to send you that you're going to fight other heroes to the death. And you've, she wants to make sure they use lethal force because she wants to make sure that she gets the best for her team. So she'll send them against Avenger-level heroes. Or to, to, it just makes no sense. Why would you... It's, just, it's such a waste of a, of a great group of heroes that if you want to recruit them, it just seems ridiculous to me. Then to top it off, I mean, writer Robbie Thompson here is having a lot of fun. And kudos to the art. Art's fantastic. Eduardo Panseca on the art. Dexter Soy, fantastic on the art, drawing all these characters. It's like, it's like, it's like writer Robbie Thompson is in a competition with Joshua Williamson to try to cram in as many members of the multiverse from different Earths as he can. <laughs> Williamson won the battle this week, but Robbie Thompson is right behind him. But even after the Suicide Squad managed to essentially defeat the retaliators then we get the opposite of marvel's thunderbolts only they call them the lightning strikes instead of the thunderbolts the lightning strikes again all thanks to ambush bug cluing us in on what's going on and then we got thing man thrill kill dead red Oedipus, and blood pouch in place of deadpool taskmaster red hulk bullseye and man thing <laughs> i mean if you're if you're a fan of marvel and and thunderbolts and the avengers and, you know, just a little bit about DC. You should have a lot of fun in this issue. But what's crazy is Amanda Waller, she's she's testing her Suicide Squad. But I don't know why she's putting them... She, I think she's, she's testing them in such a brutal fashion, knowing that they could be killed. And for what? She has to know that Rick Flagg is forming a Suicide Squad against her. And she's she's getting attacked on, on different fronts here. So I'm not sure what Amanda Amanda Waller's game here is ostensibly she wants to toughen up her own version of the Suicide Squad. But in the meantime, she's got Peacemaker, Bloodsport, Rick Flagg, uh, and uh, along with the, the Mirror Master and the Cheetah, all he's got his own group that, that are going to be, that are attacking her by the end of this issue. And this is leading into War on Earth 3. So we know eventually the Crime Syndicate's going to get involved. And this is still battling on, on, uh, on Earth 0, so I'm not sure what the hell's going on, and I'm not sure why Earth 3 is so bloody important. 
but it's very clear to me, somewhat clear, that this is a lot more complicated than what we were led to believe in future state. Uh, this is far more complicated than Amanda Warner, uh, Amanda Waller wanting to give Earth three, create for Earth three its own Superman. Uh, no, this Amanda Waller's got some other bug up her chimney, some other plan. I don't know what it is, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't curious as hell. And again, I want to give another compliment to whether it's Dexter Soy or Robbie Thompson, or uh, pardon me, Dexter Soy, Eduardo Panseca. Um, I mean, the, the these new characters of the the lightning strikes, these these thunderbolt anal, thunderbolt analogs and Avenger analog characters, beautifully drawn. It, it looks fantastic, and I I'm, I'm enjoying the breaking of the fourth wall by Ambush Bug. I actually find it helps with the narrative, and I think it would help. It, ambush bug i think does a good job keeping us readers uh knowledgeable of what's going on in the story and it works because we already know that williamson is having fun with the multiverse in the pages of justice league incarnate i like to see J robbie thompson also having that same ability through ambush bug to, to sort of break the fourth wall and keep us readers engaged and reminding us of key plot points because i actually find it helpful so, did you find it as helpful and as good? Yeah, I I mean, I've never been a b big Ambush Bug fan. I've never read a lot of his stories or whatever, but this is perfect, perfectly suited for him, right? And he says it right from the start, the first page. For anybody who's been reading, you know, you could skip this first page, but here's what's been going on. So, yeah, I mean, we read so many books. Uh, and, and even though this one comes out on time, you know, uh, again, uh, probably uh, an aspect of them having multiple artists on it. It's still nice to be reminded, okay, what's been happening? Uh, and, and yeah, we don't really know the, the whys or wherefores in terms of, of Waller. You know, we saw in Future State, like you alluded to, that she, for whatever reason, she her legacy lies on Earth-3. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out all along there's, uh, you know, Amanda Waller. Th this Amanda Waller that we thought was from our Earth was is or the DC Earth was really from Earth-3 all along. Who knows? Yeah. Um but it, but it's interesting. Uh, one thing's for sure. Even though at the end it says um, Rick Flag comes, you know, marching out of the water with his his squad and says, "Let's finish this." There's no way this finishes next issue. <laughs> we have multiple <laughs> no. issues to go with this fight between uh, Waller Squad and Rick Flag Squad, and the fact that most of Waller Squad doesn't they don't want to be doing what they're doing either. You know, Noctura doesn't, Match doesn't, yeah. certainly not Talon, who's you know, a plant for, or a mole for Rick Flagg's team, Calubra. Yep. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, if Waller's able to, to kind of hold on to her power. I think the only one that's really on her side is major disaster. And that's just cause he gets to kill people. So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, it'll also be interesting to see if any of these uh, retaliators or lightning strikes show up at, at any point <laughs> down the line that because they do, they don't seem to be, even though for the purposes of this story, they're somewhat throwaway characters. Uh, it looks like the, the artists have put some thought into their design. And definitely Robbie Thompson is having fun poking at Marvel here, calling them the lightning strikes as opposed to the thunderbolts and saying, uh, enjoy the rest of the issue. Hope to see you next month. But if I'm not in the next issue, I need you all to assemble and avenge me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, Avengers assemble and, and whatnot. So clearly Robbie Thompson's having some fun uh, with Marvel and, and the whole uh, analog characters here that have been created. So uh, this could be a valuable comic at some point down the line. If, if one of these characters hits it big, 
Uh, but I guess we'll, we'll see. So uh, I, I continue to be really entertained by this Suicide Squad title. Uh, I'm so I've never been so happy to be wrong. Uh, it felt very much like pandering when we saw the the first issue, the cover of the new issue of uh, of this volume of Suicide Squad, and saw Peacemaker there front and center, and it felt like everything to do with throwing Peacemaker on there to sell more comics because he was in the James Gunn movie and now has you know has his own show. Still not a big fan of the character, but I like what Robbie Thompson has done with him here, much more so than I, of anything I've seen. Um, from him like in the pages of swamp thing or anything i've seen from the the tv show uh this feels like a more true characterization of of what peacemaker would be like if he really believed in the ideals that he espouses you know wanting peace as it were so yeah uh i'm really enjoying suicide squad the art's fantastic um although like i said i i wouldn't be uh i wouldn't be disappointed if they went with all dexter sawyer or all edward Penseca art but I've kind of gotten used to it. And if it means this comes out on time, uh, then keep doing it for sure. Uh, okay, on to the last book we're gonna discuss in detail. It's Arkham City, The Order of the World, part four from writer Dan Waters. Danny is the artist, Dave Stewart on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, this is okay. Uh, like I have said throughout, the art isn't my favorite style. Um, we get a little movement in terms of of the story more so than we got I, I feel like the pacing of the story has been picking up the first issue or two it felt more like this sort of magical mystery story about how magic and the supernatural tied into uh, arkham asylum specifically as it related to the ten-eyed man um now we're that we've sort of and rocky alluded to it last time we've, we've sort of learned uh, along with um, what's her name? Doctor. Doctor uh, Jacosta Joy. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Joy. Uh, we've learned that the 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 title itself, uh, Arkham City, comes from the fact that in this story, the city of Gotham itself has become an analog for uh, for Arkham Asylum. So if you basically if you lay out a floor plan of Arkham Asylum and look at where certain villains would be housed in the asylum, and then Dr. Joy goes to those places and that's where those characters are. Uh, and in this one, she goes to where uh, Dr. Phosphorus and, uh, and Nocturna would be. And that is in fact where they are with Dr. Phosphorus's radiation, killing the, the people that live in the apartment next door because there's no radiation shielding. He just lives in this rundown apartment. Um, so it, it's, it's gone from that supernatural beginnings to much more of a practical story. Uh, but, there's still the mystery of why has the city become an analog for, for Arkham city itself. And, you know, adding in Azrael as a character who has his own sort of ties to supernatural and religion and whatnot is a good choice. But ultimately what we don't know from writer Dan waters is what's the point still don't really understand what the point of the story is. Um, and because the, and although the, uh, the style of art suits the tone of the story very well. It's not a style of art that I enjoy. So I think ultimately the jury's still out for me on whether or not I'm going to think that this is worth, was worth reading or not. Um, and, and to be honest, we've moved so far past a day in the pages of the regular Batman books that I'm kind of over it at this point. I'm just ready for this to be done uh, and give me the answers that you 
are trying to get across. Uh, and if I ultimately don't get any answers, I'm going to end up not really caring for the series overall that much. So, uh, so all that to say that, yeah, this is okay. I'm, I'm reserving judgment on kind of the overall story for now. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm a little bit. I'm trying to get a handle on this story too. I, I mean, I think you did a, you know, you did a good job encapsulating the essence of the story. I mean, all the villains of all the inmates of Arkham Asylum, they're they're basically after a day, they're missing, they're scattered around Gotham City, and for some for some strange reason, the for some strange reason, uh, this ten-eyed man seems to have this template in his head of like a map of. Gotham that he he associates with he associates with the layout of the old Arkham Asylum and so he knows where all these patients are in the various parts of the city and and this issue focuses on Nocturna and Dr. Phosphorus so he knows where they're located and by the way don't get con- the people who are following all our reviews do not be confused the Nocturna in this issue is not the same Nocturna in Suicide Squad the, this is the Nocturna from our Earth, Earth Zero. This isn't the Nocturna from Suicide Squad. That Nocturna, I believe, is from Earth Three, but or from a different Earth anyway. So there's there's no for you continuity buffs out there. But in any event, so we have Doctor Phosphorus here in Nocturna, who are basically uh, Doctor Phosphorus is the reason why the couple that we saw slowly dying from radiation poisoning in the last few issues, he's the reason why. I mean, he's leaking radiation. I'm not. Again, I'm not really sure what the point is. Dr. Joy goes and she, I don't know, she she had the Ten-Eyed Man stay in her apartment. She lets, she lets Azrael know. Azrael's trying to capture all these, these, uh, these former Arkham patients for obvious reasons. Probably to put them in Arkham Tower. <laughs> but... I'm not. I'm not really sure what. I'm not really sure what the point of all this is because even, even when Doctor Joy seems to uh, have a conversation with uh, Doctor Phosphorus and Nocturna, you know, and they have, I'm not even sure why. And they and Nocturna has this skull, and within this skull, is is supposed to be it's this the skull supposedly contains the madness of Gotham. And then there's this, there's this other ghost of Arkham Asylum that seems to be going around. So I'm sure this ghost of Arkham Asylum is another patient of Arkham, but we don't know who it is yet. But this, this ghost of Amadeus Arkham that's going around is, ends up at the end of the issue, apparently being controlled by professor pig. The, the other member of that other, that, yeah, that rogues, we haven't seen professor pig in a while. Well, and I've been perfectly fine with that. I cannot yeah. stand <laughs> Professor Pig as a character, and that—that's just one more. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, I'm—I'm I'm actually surprised that he hasn't shown up to this point. But yeah, yeah. And, and for the and that skull too was—I almost feel like that was a red herring because wasn't it when Noctera tasted it that she's like, "Well, this is just a regular skull. There's nothing special about it." Yeah. So it was well, it- all misdirection. I mean, at various times we've thought that man, the ten-eyed man is just crazy but then when when dr joy is going to the various places and finding the people where they're supposed to be you think oh maybe there's something to it and then we find out that the skull is just a skull yeah. uh and dr phosphorus well the ten-eyed man says all sorts of things you can't listen to him so it's like i don't know what to think about this story well and not really only that th- th- there's another aspect of this story as well that that writer uh dan waters focuses on and that is detective dermot 
in the first issue, Detective Dermot was was it was, was injured, and he's still he's still recovering in the hospital. And in this issue, he's visited by his son Martin and his wife Hannah, and his son, and there's and his son Martin. Like I mean, the, the ten-eyed man ends up in the hospital too, and I'm not really sure what what purpose Detective Dermot serves in this story, other than being a someone who I mean, he, he finds out in this issue that that Doctor Joy has been hiding out. The Ten-Eyed Man, because the Ten-Eyed Man reveals that to Detective Dermot, and I'm sure that's going to piss Detective Dermot off because he was injured, and his other cops, his fellow cops, were injured. And I don't blame Detective Dermot for being a little bit upset with Doctor Joy. Doctor Troy, in almost we talked about when we reviewed the first issue, she's almost desperate to, to cure. I mean, I mean, I'm you know the failure rate of curing anybody at Arkham Asylum is probably pretty low. <laughs> and uh, or part par, part of me pretty high because you, you don't cure anyone at Arkham Asylum. There's a reason why everyone's making a big hoopla out of the so-called cure in the pages of uh, of um, detective comics with this uh, shadows of the uh, shadows of the bat that Marika Tamaki is doing. But uh, Doctor Joy seems almost obsessed with being able to find a cure and be able to cure one patient, and she she picks the ten-eyed man of all of all things and. I'm not, you know, again, I think Detective Dermot here, he's sort of like the, the James, I guess he's maybe like the James Gordon analog here. Maybe he's the, is he the, is he the rough and gritty, tough, you know, good natured cop that's in the wrong place at the wrong time, or he's the voice of conscience or the, the, the other, the other side, uh, you know, the, he's the, he's the opposite. He provides some, a sober second thought to Dr. Joy. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, this is one where I don't quite have a handle on the story and it might be one of those stories where I got to wait to the end. We got to wait to the final issue to see how it all comes together if it does. But, uh, overall the jury's still out on this. I, I'm, I'm not this, I'm not, I'm not loving this, but I don't, I, I, I do like the art. Unlike you, I, I, uh, I'm more, I, I'm more a fan of Danny's art. I think it really does fit the narrative, the creepiness of Dr. Phosphorus, the creepiness of the ghost of Amadeus Arkham, especially the creepiness of, of the Ten-Eyed Man, the way he looks. And this does have a very eerie, creepy feel about it, which I think is in fitting with the story. So we'll see how it ends. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I think there's two issues left. I think it's a six issue. So, right. Uh, okay, well, there's a couple of other books that we uh, are being released by DC that we're not going to talk about in detail. We have Justice League Infinity number seven uh, from the horror line. DC Horror presents Soul Plumber number four, and then also um, the Joker presents a Puzzle Box number six, which is from their uh, their digital first line, which is met, written by Re Matthew Rosenberg, which supposedly is really really good. Um, and I, you know, I'm big fan, fan of Matthew Rosenberg, and I probably would be reading it, except for yeah, you guessed it. It's it's Joker. I really don't need more more Joker in my life, so that's the only reason I'm not checking that out. Uh, we also have a Batgirl, uh, Batgirl of Burnside omnibus hardcover, and there is a Wonder Woman: The Silver Age omnibus volume one hardcover uh, coming out this week as well from uh, from DC. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, be sure that if you uh, only listen to us on the audio side, that you head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel. Just do a space for uh, do a search rather for comic space boom exclamation point. That's his channel. Uh, you can follow all our content that we release uh, videos of there, including the Spawn Daily. Uh, be sure you like this video, ring the notification bell so you know when uh, new content comes out. Conversely, if you've discovered us on YouTube and you don't subscribe to the audio only portion, just head over to your favorite uh, podcast application or platform, do a search for the comic source, and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the content. Uh, we have our uh, 
Comic Source Awards coming up toward the end of the month. Rocky's already been doing some uh, kind of recaps of his uh, his favorite DC comics and storylines and whatnot on his channel. So I encourage you to go and check those out. Uh, and yeah, looking forward to uh, a really fantastic 2022. Like we mentioned uh, at the beginning of the episode, big crisis event coming from DC. We'll see how that cleans everything up. And, uh, and yeah, looking forward to just another great year in comics. Uh, anything to add, Rock? Uh, no, just uh, bigger and better. Fingers crossed yeah. that 2022 will be a little better than 2021. Yeah, I'm definitely ready to get back out there in the world without having to have a mask on. So that's right. Uh, everybody, get get vaccinated, get your booster. Let's uh, let's end this insanity. Uh, let's not have 2022 be another 2022. See what I did there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, appreciate you joining us, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.